in light of the current situation, uh, this is a speech which I wrote for a solidarity rally that the party here in Providence hosted last weekend. I've made a couple of very small uh, adjustments in order to update it a little bit based on the events of the last week. Thank you everyone for coming out today. I'm Dan, an organizer with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and today we are here to stand in unwavering solidarity with the people of Palestine in their just struggle against genocidal occupation. For 75 years, the Palestinian people have been forced from their homes, seen entire villages ethnically cleansed, and had two million people forced into the largest open-air prison on earth in Gaza. And the occupation forces did all of this with the full backing and military assistance of the United States, the largest and deadliest empire on the planet. Now, when the Palestinian people have stood up and fought back against the occupation forces, which murder Palestinians every single day, their heroic struggle has been condemned by U.S. politicians as so-called terrorism. We are here today to declare that resistance to occupation is not terrorism. Standing up and fighting back against apartheid is not terrorism. Refusing to watch your parents, grandparents, children, brothers, and sisters slaughtered in silence is not terrorism. In fact, it is the Israeli occupation forces who have killed over 12,000 Palestinian civilians in the last 20 years, and their U.S. backers who are the real terrorists. Many have rushed to contemn violence on both sides, but the difference between the violence of the apartheid government of Israel and that of the resistance forces in Palestine could not be more stark. In just a few hours after the resistance operation began, Israel unleashed a bombing campaign on Gaza that was not just indiscriminate. It intentionally targeted hospitals, residential buildings, and critical infrastructure used by civilians. Over 200 Palestinian civilians were killed in the immediate bombardment. Another 2,000 have been murdered by the IDF in just the last week. In Gaza, residents are subject entirely to the whims of the Israeli military occupation. The people of Gaza do not control their water, food, or electricity supplies. They cannot travel to see their family members in occupied territory. They cannot travel outside of Gaza even for critical medical care without a pass, which is rarely provided. They are blockaded from trading for the basic supplies they desperately need. Meanwhile, Gaza is subjected to constant violence from the Israeli armed forces, including intentional bombing of residential areas by the Air Force. The IDF uses Gaza as a testing ground for new weapons, then sells those weapons to oppressive governments around the world, like Azerbaijan, using the violence committed against Palestinians as proof of their effectiveness. There is no situation in Israel that could be considered even slightly comparable to the constant violence and terror unleashed on Palestinians on a daily basis. When Palestinians have appealed for a peaceful solution, the United States and its EU-NATO allies have done nothing but string along the empty promise of a two-state solution for decades while doing nothing to stop Israeli settlers from illegally occupying more and more land. The Nakba, the catastrophe where over 750,000 Palestinians were forced from their homes in 1948, remains an ongoing process. This method of slow ethnic cleansing is based on the same policies used by U.S. settlers hundreds of years ago against the indigenous people of this country. Those parallels are on horrifying display as we speak, as Israel is in the process of attempting to ethnically cleanse one million people from northern Gaza, while the United States, the model on which Zionism's genocidal methodology is based, cheers them on and provides weapons and support. Palestinians have appealed to every level of organization on earth, the UN, the International Criminal Court, and even to the United States itself. And yet, 
all the while, none of the capitalist governments that claim to care so much about freedom and self-determination for oppressed people have done a damn thing while hundreds of Palestinians are killed and thousands forced from their homes every year. In 2018, when Palestinians launched the nonviolent March of Return, thousands of unarmed people were gunned down. <sighs> Sorry, thousands of unarmed people were gunned down by the occupation forces for the crime of waving a Palestinian flag or standing too close to a fence. Now we see Western governments joining in, banning pro-Palestinian protests, and in Germany and the UK, banning even the waving of a Palestinian flag. Yet they continue to demand peaceful protest. Faced with unending terrorism and a brutal existence under the jackboot of occupation forces, it is inevitable that the people of Palestine would fight back. If your family faced the same violence every day, you would resist too. Even the UN Charter defines resistance to occupation as just and legal. As the UN General Assembly has affirmed, quote, the legitimacy of the struggle of peoples for independence, territorial integrity, national unity and liberation from colonial and foreign domination and foreign occupation by all available means, including armed struggle, end quote. It is the occupation which is criminal. The resistance could not be more justified. And not only has the U.S. refused to do anything about the violence unleashed by these Zionist occupation forces, it is the only reason those forces can continue to operate. The U.S. gives Israel billions of dollars in military aid every year, without which the occupation could not continue. U.S. politicians say they are against violence on both sides, while at the same time giving only one side the world's deadliest and most advanced weaponry. Our own Senator Jack Reed, a longtime booster of the military-industrial complex and the United States Empire, immediately took to social media to condemn Palestinian resistance fighters as, quote, terrorists, and stated, quote, Israel has a right to defend itself, end quote. For American politicians, Palestinians never have a right to defend themselves. Palestinians must suffer in silence, wash their homes leveled, their families slaughtered, and their nation torn apart piece by piece. Palestinians are denied the very humanity by our politicians. Over 200 Palestinians have been killed by settlers and the occupation forces this year alone prior to the resistance operation. Yet the corporate media acts as if all the violence started yesterday and was initiated by the Palestinians. The stenographers for empire and colonialism at the New York Times, CNN, and nearly every major U.S. media outlet completely ignores violence against Palestinians and acts as if the lopsided horror they face is just something that has to be accepted. Multiple times in the last several days, major Western outlets like the Financial Times have intentionally redacted statements made publicly by Israeli officials openly admitting to targeting civilians and intending to ethnically cleanse Gaza in order to conceal from their readers the true scope of the slaughter. As Malcolm X once said, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. And that's why we're here today to push back against the narrative which labels resistance to apartheid as terrorism. American workers cannot stand idly by while the government that speaks in our name sends billions of dollars in massive military arsenals overseas to slaughter and oppress our fellow workers in Palestine. In the 1980s, U.S. workers opposed the apartheid regime in South Africa, which was backed by the U.S. government. This was an inspiring moment of global solidarity, with U.S. dock workers refusing to load cargo on South African ships, contributing to the global isolation of the horrific apartheid government. Today, we must do the same and demand our government stop its support for the brutal repression of the Palestinian people. 
The murderous occupation of Palestine could not continue without the massive annual military aid from the United States. This aid must end. We demand an end to all aid to the apartheid government. No people, no government, no organization which claims to stand for freedom and self-determination of peoples can support the continued occupation and ethnic cleansing of Palestine. We call for an end to apartheid. We call for the release of the thousands of Palestinian political prisoners held indefinitely and tortured for the crime of demanding freedom for their people. We call for an end to the murderous occupation. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Thank you. podcast work stoppage my name is john i'm dan and i'm lena and we're an entirely listener supported show so thank you so much if you support us on patreon and if you don't yet you can find us at patreon.com slash work stoppage uh, hop in the discord if you're not already in there if you're a patron who needs stickers just message us on patreon and if you want to help the show a little bit more leave us a five-star review on apple podcasts we've been getting some good ones recently and we do read all of them yeah, absolutely. Well, to continue from our intro, we want to highlight some of the many different people in the labor movement who are standing with Palestine, because this is a very important thing that we all must stand in solidarity and in struggle with. And so uh, we're going to highlight a few stories of that now. Yeah. So, I, I mean, look, we'll get to the regular la- labor news in a minute, but like, <laughs> I know to some, this might seem like a, a, a tangent or something that's not related. But again, as I kind of you know, wrote in my speech, it's like it, the U.S. empire is an integral part of this. And thus, as U.S. workers, we have a responsibility to fight against our government's complicity in this genocide. And so, unfortunately, we have seen most of the U.S. labor movement's leadership either remain silent on the slaughter of Palestinian children using bombs and missiles paid for by the United States or they have explicitly stood in complicity with apartheid. Uh, labor historian Jeff Shirky posted an extensive thread on Twitter, which was really good, documenting the long history of the open support for Zionism by the leadership of the AFL-CIO. Uh, in past recent years, several UAW-affiliated grad student unions, which voted to endorse BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, uh, has had these resolutions nullified by the national leadership of the administration caucus. The AFL-CIO stepped in to crush a similar resolution passed by the San Francisco Labor Council in 2021. And Rich Trumka, former president of the AFL-CIO, referred to all anti-Zionists as anti-Semitic back in 2009. And this all stands alongside the long, shameful history of the AFL-CIO, working with the CIA to crush popular movements around the world for decades during the Cold War. And unfortunately, some of the so-called leadership of the labor movement today continues to stand on the side of oppression. Uh, In response to these events, Stuart Applebaum, president of the RWDSU, and Randy Weingarten, president of the AFT, both issued statements supporting Israel's right to defend itself. Which again, I am so fucking tired of hearing that framing. That is complete bullshit, and it completely 
silences the 75 years of ethnic cleansing, occupation, and slaughter that the people of Palestine has faced. There is no comparison. Like, Israel has the right. No, Israel does not have the right to defend itself. I'm just going to state that unequivocally. A state whose entire foundation is ethnic cleansing and genocidal slaughter does not have the right to defend itself. The people have the right to resist that. That is what is right. Not this bullshit. That's right. So, anyways, like, they're saying this stuff. The IDF dropped white phosphorus on a children's hospital. Mm-hmm. White phosphorus is a chemical weapon that burns at 1,500 degrees. It melts metal, and they drop that on children on purpose. I don't ever want to hear about Israel's right to defend itself. That is fucking garbage. That is complicity in the slaughter of the Palestinian people. Well, and Israel, like the white phosphorus, like leveling residential buildings, like so many other things that they're doing, anytime any of these things happens and we don't know the culprit, we immediately blame some other country that is a state enemy, and it becomes like a three-month news cycle. But when Israel does it, it's just like a natural matter, of course, and we're, we're supposed to just expedite more aid to them so they can drop more white phosphorus. Yeah. But thankfully, in 2023, labor is not in entire lockstep on this issue. So I, I, mean, I know it, it, it's, I'm very visibly angry, but like there, there is actually some good news in this. Uh, uh, the United Electrical Workers, the UE, who we have long supported on this show, have uh, continued their long and principled stance against Israeli occupation. Their most recent UE convention calls for an end to apartheid and demands the U.S. government and all military aid to Israel. UE has officially supported BDS since 2015, despite attempts by bro-genocide lawmakers in the United States to ban the movement. UE Secretary-Treasurer Andrew Dinkeliker said, quote, U.S. military aid going in is pouring gasoline onto a fire. It encourages that there be military solutions and military solutions will get more people killed, end quote. That should be the bare minimum stance mm-hmm. from the labor movement. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to just be really angry. I do want to applaud the UE for taking this good principled stance. Yeah, and also Starbucks Workers United, you know, one of the most militant inspiring organizations to emerge from the COVID organizing wave has been particularly strong in standing with the oppressed. On Twitter, Workers United Upstate New York said, quote, the labor movement must support liberation for all and fight all forms of oppression, end quote. Connecticut SEIU organizer Cooper Carraway spoke at a rally in defense of Palestine saying, quote, every single person who built this labor movement, who fought for civil rights, were called terrorists. Our enemies are not in Gaza. Our comrades are in Gaza. End quote. That's fucking right. And I'm, you know, proud of all of those workers for standing up for what's right. Because it's like, what is the purpose of the labor movement? The purpose of the labor movement is to uplift the oppressed. That is ultimately what our whole goal here is. And so it should be easy for us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people because it is the same fight. And so, you know, testifying to the truth of this statement, you know, on uh, just a couple of days after the, this all began, or this current, you know, round of Israeli violence against the Palestinians, uh, Abby Martin, producer of the documentary Gaza Fights for Freedom, announced that the film's field producer who lives in Gaza has had his entire family's homes destroyed in Israel's genocidal bombing campaign. Needless to say, he is not a member of Hamas. Mm -hmm. And in response to, you know, the workers 
the Starbucks workers in the union and their their pushback, you know, against U.S. support for the genocidal occupation of Palestine. Starbucks, the company, unsurprisingly, this is fully expected, responded with a statement on Wednesday, October 11th, attacking the union and making it clear that Starbucks corporate management stands fully behind the U.S. government in its support for this, the murderous policies of the Zionist occupation, saying, quote, we are deeply troubled by the spread of misinformation, inaccurate headlines, and third-party social media posts stemming from statements made by Workers United, end quote. I don't really know what the fuck they're talking about because all of those posts that I saw from Starbucks Workers United were literally just saying, hey, maybe we should oppose genocide, uh, which I don't really know what how, how any of that could be misinformation. Well, it's like- but their statement then... Uh, just when when you have a company like Starbucks who is in the middle of getting uh, getting taken to court over and over again for these specific things in the context of union campaigns and union busting, spreading misinformation, inaccurate headlines, these it, just look in a mirror. Just look in a mirror for two fucking seconds. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Their statement, you know, then went on to encourage its readers to contact the president of the SEIU and implied that the statements from Workers United in solidarity with Palestinian liberation were somehow supporting, air quotes, terrorism. House Republicans also joined in the attacks on workers for, quote, supporting terrorism, end quote, and called for the SEIU to condemn their own members. And this, again, makes it crystal clear where the lines are drawn. Workers and bosses have nothing in common. Mm -hmm. The bosses stand with colonial domination and the workers stand with the liberation of the oppressed. Yeah, and I mean, in Starbucks, it's particularly a stark case because uh, if I remember correctly, back in 2019, when Howard Schultz was kind of floating a bid for president, he actually went and gave like a huge donation to APAC and then gave some kind of like keynote speech to them. So it's like, you know... This whole this whole uh, machine of support for Israel is not just political. It, it's it's also economic. It's and it, it, the economics of it aren't just in the military industrial complex. It's companies like Starbucks. It's companies like Hobby Lobby and Chick Fil A, which you might think of as being politically on the other side as Starbucks, but they're not because all companies are on politically really on the same side. Basically, yeah, that's right. A coalition of Google and Amazon tech workers also spoke out against their employers' complicity in apartheid. Workers Against Nimbus uh, issued a statement calling for their employees to in- immediately cancel the $1.2 billion Project Nimbus, which provides high-tech support to the IDF. The workers said, quote, As long as their tech continues to power the Israeli apartheid government and military, Amazon and Google are complicit in this devastation, including the recent indiscriminate bombings of residential buildings that have wiped out entire Palestinian families and neighborhoods in Gaza, end quote. I mean, that's so correct, too. It's like, how do you think the IDF set up those automatic gun turrets? On the on, mm-hmm. on the border fences and stuff like that shit doesn't come from nowhere. And yeah, maybe MIT, but like Google and Amazon are utterly deeply complicit in that as well. And since I mentioned a university, uh, we did also hear from grad student workers unionized with GEO 3550 at University of Michigan. Shout out to Michigan, who also issued a statement condemning university president Santa Ono for refusing to mention the violence unleashed on the Palestinian people. 
Quote, we condemn UM's statement, which renews its commitment to Israeli partner universities, conveniently ignores the history of Israeli settler colonialism and apartheid in Palestine, and disregards the hardship endured by its own Palestinian students across UM's three campuses, who are undoubtedly affected by these recent events. This system of apartheid is supported by the American government and tax dollars. UM invests in companies such as Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and Hewlett-Packard Company, which have contributed technologies that have perpetuated human rights violations against Palestinians. This is unacceptable. We call on UM to immediately divest from any companies that are involved in violence in the region, end quote. Yeah, which was a really good statement. I also want to shout out Geo because they didn't just issue that statement. They also held a, a, a big protest uh, on campus with this exact message, mm-hmm. which that rocks. That's that's excellent. Love to see that. Uh, you know, shout outs to Geo for for having a strong principled stance here. Um, unfortunately, though, you know, as expected in this country, the brave support from some in the labor movement has met with a backlash. Like again, you know, the Starbucks workers were attacked not only by the company, which we expect, but also by fucking politicians. And the Graduate Student Worker Union at NYU, uh, GSOC, UAW, issued a statement condemning the university's president's statement siding with the Zionist occupation and calling on the school to end its complicity in the ongoing colonial oppression of Palestinians. In response to this statement, and after decades of ruling class hand-wringing about freedom of speech on college campuses... Law firm Winston and Strong announced that they were withdrawing a job offer from the NYU Law School student body president because of signing on to this statement. And like, it's just, I like calling out hypocrisy. Like, it's pointless. It doesn't do anything. But like, it's it's just it's so staggering because again, like, violent, even genocidal speech in favor of colonialism is not just allowed. It's celebrated. It's broadcast from every media outlet in the fucking country. But anybody who stands up for the oppressed, especially and specifically for the people of Palestine, is immediately attacked. There was a fucking truck that drove around Cambridge uh, uh, yesterday or two days ago. I, I don't know if it's from Canary Mission, but this is very much Canary Mission style of bullshit, where they tried to shame the people, uh, the students of Harvard who signed on to a statement in solidarity with the Palestinian people by putting their fucking pictures on there and calling them Harvard's biggest anti-Semites. And we just allow this shit to continue and fucking encourage it. Like, these people are monsters, the people that are supporting this genocide, and yet they are the ones in power. And it's like, and this is exactly what the labor movement needs to be fighting back against. Yeah, that's right. Well, and so, yeah, know, with that, we'll, we'll get into the regular news. <laughs> Yeah, so we're going to start with a follow-up from the Rutgers nurses. So as their strike rolls through its third month, the management's commitment to worsening care continues to grow. The administration has cut nurses' health care, hired scabs at twice the national average wage of travel nurses, which is already a very high-paying job, offered only a 3% pay increase while the union is demanding 10%, and refused to mandate safe staffing levels, instead only offering quote-unquote guidelines. That's wild. Double the standard travel nurse salary? That's like well into the six figures to just hire a bunch of scabs. That's money that you should, that's the wage you should just pay your regular nurses. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're being paid an average of $4,405 a week. Wow. Which is, that's mind-blowing. Like, 
I mean, I, I have what is considered, you know, a good middle-class job. This is over four times what I get paid. Yeah, and this is all while the administration claims to not be able to pay for safe, safe staffing levels. The administration has also gotten a court to rule in favor of the of the administration, saying that it is illegal for nurses to, quote, gather in large groups, and quote, outside the hospital, effectively banning picketing. The judge agreed with the administration that it would be, quote, too disruptive. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, even, even the union organizing angle of this aside nurses gathering in large groups in or outside of the building is an integral part of their job period full <laughs> yeah, stop yeah it's like we're gonna operate a hospital without large groups of nurses what what are you talking about <laughs> yeah yeah it, that's it's it's absurd yeah it's ridiculous and I mean, this isn't where the federal government's repression ends either. The federal mediator, quote, or I mean, I get not quote, but assisting with the negotiations told the workers that their only choices were to accept the current offer from the administration or be subject, subject to binding arbitration. Well, to credit to the nurses, they voted 89% to maintain the strike and reject the offer from the hospital's administration. Yeah, which... Shout outs to them because that's like that's tough. You know, when you have the mediator being out there like you can't get any better than this and they're really, really trying to, you know, beat you down with this like dismissive appraisal of things to just be like, well, you're clearly working on the side of the bosses. So fuck you. We're going to keep striking. Well, and it's also <laughs> yeah. like they just keep trying to impose these arbitrary limits. It's like, oh, well, here's the offer. Oh, well, if you don't accept the offer, then you're subject to binding arbitration or you're in violation of whatever. And it's like, okay, bind the arbitration. See what happens. If we're still out here, <laughs> you still don't run the hospital. So, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, a striking nurse, Sophia Moschio, uh, said about the crisis nurses face, quote, many nurses feel their values as medical professionals are being ignored or compromised. If the concerns of nurses aren't taken seriously, the cycle will perpetuate itself and more will continue to retire or just leave the field, end quote. And I mean, if they're worried about Making sure that because the company always like or companies always like to say, oh, there was no one, you know, who's willing to work or whatever. It's like you're literally driving these people out of the industry. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like that with this, you know, the strategy that we've seen deployed by the healthcare industry of, of, of extensive use of extremely highly paid travel nurses as scabs like that is <laughs> you can't play whack-a-mole with strikes like like. It's as as exactly as she was saying. She's 100% like, that's just going to destroy even further mm -hmm. the healthcare system in this country. Like, it's not going to be like, oh, we're going to stop the nurses from striking and make them accept. No, you're, they're going to leave the industry and go work somewhere else because they have to pay their bills. Their options aren't like, uh, you know, either like accept the offer at the that they're getting from Rutgers at this hospital or like... I don't know, vanish into thin air. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like their other option, if you're going to crush the strike is okay, then we just can't work in healthcare. We'll have to go work somewhere else. And then we just won't have a fucking health. We already don't really in this country. It's just going to get worse and worse. And so like, that's why, you know, like we, one of the reasons we want to highlight these nurses strikes is it's like, this isn't just about, you know, better 
labor conditions for these nurses, which is good enough on its own. But it's like, this affects everybody. <laughs> like, if they keep doing this, you know, the problem of closing, you know, rural hospitals around this country is just going to continue to get exponentially worse. And you're only going to have healthcare facilities in major cities, and no one's going to be able to use them unless you're a fucking millionaire. Yeah. Which is, in some cases, the intended goal, I think. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I mean, as long as we're talking about companies that are just systematically uh, crushing the efficacy of the United States healthcare system, Kaiser Permanente is next in our notes. That's right. So uh, just a week after the end of the largest healthcare strike in U.S. history, when 75,000 members of the SEIU, United Healthcare Workers, and OPEIU walked out to protest Kaiser Permanente's refusal to provide safe staffing levels, the coalition of Kaiser Permanente unions announced that they have re reached a tentative agreement for a new contract with the healthcare giant. In their announcement, the union coalition thanked Labor Secretary Julie Sue for assisting with negotiations. Now, the centerpiece of this new deal announced Friday, October 13th, is raises of approximately 21% across the four-year contract, aver averaging just over 5% per year. The deal also includes higher profit sharing in the form of a year-end bonus. On staffing, the core issue of the strike, however, the New Deal has no firm requirements for specific hiring goals. Kaiser is required to increase its funding for training and education by 40% and to hold job fairs in the states it operates in with the involvement of the unions. But the primary mechanism for increasing staffing appears to just be the allure of wage increases." This this is really unfortunate because there's a history of Kaiser Permanente not only doing these sorts of things where they are training people to mm -hmm. be in the industry, but then subsequently not hiring them mm -hmm. at the exact same time while nurses are continually understaffed, then citing that there are not enough people to hire or some shit like that. Yeah, like I don't want to be totally cynical and say that there's never right. a situation where you like can't give the employer a little bit of wiggle room in the language like if they've been negotiating in good faith and you have a good history of negotiations and you believe that they're going to be you know follow the contract then it's okay to leave tiny little bits of wiggle room around but this is kaiser permanente they have only ever acted one way since forever <laughs> Yeah, and like to be clear, you know, like I'm not we're not trying to be like ultra left weirdos trying to tell the SEIU how to run their strike sure. or anything like that. But and and you know, ultimately, like with any of these, the test is is the membership. We'll see what the members think. If you know, if this passes by 90%, then clearly then the rank and file are happy with this methodology and hopefully, you know, it does force them to do it. But I'm just concerned about this because exactly as what you just said, Lena, it's like They've, they've spent money on training before and then simply refused to hire the people that they trained. And one of the other things, though, that was driving me, was just making me very annoyed about the way Kaiser has touted this deal, is they're like, look, we're being so generous. We're raising the minimum wage to our healthcare workers in California to $25 an hour, neglecting to mention the fact that California just passed a bill legally requiring them to do that. Yeah. It, it's fucking ridiculous. Like, like, you know, there's there is a part of me that sees contracts like this and wants to go ultra left and is like, go for a union hiring hall or nothing. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, at the end of the day, like you said, it is the membership that is going to vote on this. And I would be curious to hear what the membership's response to this is right off the bat. I haven't uh -huh. really looked into that Absolutely. a whole lot, but that's going to be the yeah. critical like canary in the coal mine for this situation here. Uh -huh. Yeah. And and now this does come, you know, workers had 
had obviously this is coming off their three day strike, and they had threatened a you know potential longer mm-hmm. strike, potentially up to eight days next month if Kaiser didn't negotiate a deal. So they absolutely were you know putting some real pressure on them. So. You know, we'll see. We'll see what the what the rank and file thinks. I think it'll be very interesting to see what the the vote count is on this one. But I, one other thing I just did want to mention on this is because this deal comes at nearly the same time that California state government also announced a massive $200 million judgment against Kaiser for refusing to provide sufficient staffing levels to meet California's legal minimum service requirements. The company was fined $50 million by the state and required to invest $150 million in increasing its service capacity to the legal requirement over the next five years. And this is the same issue that the National Union of Healthcare Workers, a, a, a different union than the ones that were just involved in this strike, they struck over this last year. Yeah, I did. I appreciate the fines and the requirement to invest funding, but why is it always a dollar figure and never a jobs figure? What, you know, why is it always like yeah. you are required to do $150 million worth of no, 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 no. You are required to hire X number of people by the end of the year or whatever. Like, why can't we ever get to that point? Yeah, well, and, and, and it should be, or you will be taken over by the right. state. <laughs> yes, exactly. Or directly by the workers or whatever is most expedient. But yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, just moving on to our next story. This is a real quick one. I just wanted to, you know, shout out one of our listeners. Thank you, Samwise, in the Discord, uh, for bringing this issue to our attention. You know, we've been talking about uh, the movement to unionize workers at REI over the last, you know, year or so. It's been really exciting. You know, workers on both coasts managed to unionize some of these stores. And it's been one of the real strong examples of like, hey, look what happens to the so-called progressive company the minute their workers decide they should have, you know, a little say in how their jobs go. And immediately REI reveals itself to be just like every other company and, and move full bore on union busting. And unfortunately, they're taking another page from Starbucks union busting platform uh, where this week they announced that they will be laying off 275 workers across the country, including multiple union organizers at unionized stores, while at the same time announcing they're hiring 1,300 temporary seasonal workers, which it's like, well, okay, this is uh, pretty obvious what you're doing there. You know, it's as, as you know, our listener pointed out, This is clearly aimed at demoralizing workers and disrupting union efforts, much as has been done at Starbucks with their continued illegal firing of union organizers. And, you know, these are also likely illegal violations of status quo. But even beyond that, it's just yet another example of how stacked the legal system is against workers when bosses can just do this shit out in the open. And at worst, you know, maybe several months later, be forced to rehire somebody with back pay with no actual penalties. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we just want to extend our full solidarity to the REI workers and continue to, you know, expose REI for not being progressive and for being just like every other fucking company out there. Yeah, absolutely. And to move to our next little story that is also kind of brief, we have uh, one of our favorite Twitter accounts, or actually they're on a bunch of different social media platforms, so I'm sure you can follow them wherever you are, Uh, Daily Union Elections, which highlights the struggles of, of many different drives that might not have otherwise come to light. They had actually reported on the annual process required by Wisconsin law where all public employee unions in the state are required to uh, recertify their unions every single year or risk decertification. Workers who do not vote 
have their votes automatically counted as no votes in an absolutely brazenly anti-working class law. Yeah, it's 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 like imagine if you went to vote for president. I know bourgeois elections are a joke in the first place, but humor me. Imagine if you went to vote for president and they were like, hey, if you vote, we count your vote. If you don't vote, that counts as a vote for the incumbent. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's ridiculous. And I mean, all public unions not only are subject to this, but they're forced to pay for it and yeah. hold these pro- these elections themselves, which I mean, clearly the only purpose of this is to beat down workers over time and get them to give up via bureaucratic terrorism. And and also to 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 fucking just it, deplete the resources of these unions. It is mm-hmm. unimaginably expensive to mobilize your entire union membership and hold an election every single year mm-hmm. yeah and there are uh, what other institutions are held to this kind of standard we don't even vote for most <laughs> yeah, of the people who run the government <laughs> <laughs> well and the other thing though it's like you know do they make the cop unions do this no of course they don't there's always an exception from these anti-worker laws for the unions that are fake unions and are just you know a cabal of people hired by the state to, to crush the working class yeah. Yeah. Well, and as you'd expect, almost no workers vote to actually get rid of their unions. Of the 5,000 public union members who voted uh, in April of this year, only 87, less than uh, 0.2% voted to get rid of their unions. Yet, despite this, three very small bargaining units were like additionally decertified, largely because members did not vote with all of their non-voting counted as no votes. I mean, that's outrageous, too. Like, you see why that's written into the law, because if you mm-hmm. only counted the votes that were actually cast, no unions would ever get decertified. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because, again, then these, these sorts of laws are always positioned as, look, we just want to respect employee choice. No, you don't. If you wanted to respect people's choices, you wouldn't make a, a not voting a no vote. That's like just revealing you're putting your foot finger on the fucking scale. Yeah, removing the ability to abstain from a vote is anti-democratic. Yeah, and like 0.2%, 82 people voting to decertify their unions, I'll chalk that up to a combination of statistical error and personal grudges. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, and possibly even in cases where there were, you know, some people voting no, all of the people who didn't vote still got their votes counted as no's. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. I mean, the the whole thing is ridiculous, and yeah, it's, it's fucked. So yeah. solidarity with the the workers of Wisconsin, but really it's ultimately showing, you know, exactly why unions are so important in the first place. And another story that demonstrates that uh, was a really good piece that was put, put out in, once again, Labor Notes, you know, one of the best resources out there for covering the labor movement. Always, always want to shout out Labor Notes for their excellent work. Well, they were highlighting, they, they put out a recent piece highlighting an organizing effort by sanitation workers in one of the most anti-union states in the country who use direct action to make their voices heard and win real material gains, again, even in a very hostile environment for organizing. Uh, in the, this started in the first week of September where the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, which is affiliated with UE Local 150, as always, shout out to UE, uh, they launched a six-day stand-down strike by city workers who handled trash disposal after months of the city administration refusing to listen to their demands. And this all stems from basically like when the COVID pandemic started, workers' wages were frozen for two entire years because they're like, we can't negotiate during a crisis. 
which is always code for we're going to use this crisis as an opportunity to not pay. You. Yeah, despite the fact that your labor has just become exponentially more important to society due to the crisis. Right. And so now that their wages are no longer frozen and now that the government has declared COVID over, even though it's not, uh, you know, since then, the Durham City Council proposed to give workers raises of 6% to compensate for this, which is nowhere near enough to account not only for inflation, soaring costs of living, but just the fact that multiple years have passed, just that alone, <laughs> that that's not enough. And so the public workers countered with demands for an immediate $5,000 bonus for all city workers to make up for years of back pay they had not received, pay for work done outside the workers' job description, and to require the city work to hire all workers directly rather than using non-union contractors or temps, which that's a that's a great demand. Very important. And and also, like, I know we talk a lot of shit on bonuses, but $5,000 is a pretty reasonable chunk of change. A lot of bosses will try to give you, like, a grand and be like, here's your no-raise bonus. But $5,000, I mean, that buys you a decent used car. Yeah. Well, and their argument here is not so much we're gonna we want a bonus instead of a raise, right? Like, which is how bosses usually try to 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 get around mm-hmm. giving you a raise. They're like, "Well, no, you need to give us a raise." But there was also those two years you were fucking dicking us around at the beginning of COVID, and you need to pay us for that. And that's what the $5,000 yeah. is. Well, and cinching the whole thing together by saying like, "Hey, actually, you have to hire all of us directly now, too." Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so. Uh, And the results of the refusal of Durham's government to actually properly pay their workers have been staggering. Only 57 of the city's 177 positions at the Public Works Department alone have been filled. They only have 30% of the positions filled. Like, I don't understand how they're able to operate city services. Like, I I imagine they just don't. Yeah, I I mean, probably. Yeah, And, and... in addition to, you know, so many of these workers literally being forced to do the work of three people, not just their jobs are hard. They are literally doing the job description of three different jobs. Many city workers have been forced to take second jobs on top of that just to pay the bills because of how low their pay is. And so with the government refusing to act on September 6th, the sanitation workers refused to move their trucks. After just a few days, trash began piling up all over the city and administrators scrambled Not to, you know, be like, oh, you know, the workers, maybe they're right. Maybe we should just pay them. They scrambled to hire an outside contracting firm to go collect the trash. But, like, by that point, you know, the workers had made their point that the city can't function without their work. And so a few days after the strike, Durham City government proposed a compromise where workers would receive a $3,000 bonus. And the workers are like, well, so here the problem is you wrote $3,000. But see, we wrote 5,000, <laughs> so you just go back and fix that, and then we're good. And, and so the workers refused to accept this bullshit concession and packed every city meeting for the next month demanding a $5,000 bonus for all city workers. And so last week, on October 5th, the workers won a major, though partial, victory. The city council voted to approve $6.5 million in bonuses for city workers. All workers making under $43,000 a year will receive the full $5,000 bonus, while those making between, I think it's like $43,000 and $72,000 will receive a smaller bonus. And the union says they still intend to fight for the full $5,000 for workers making between $43,000 and $75,000, but they'll take the $5,000 for the rest of the workers, uh, which is great. And, and, 
and I think that this stands as a really great example of how even in a state with I be, which I has, believe has the lowest union density in the country and whose government has a near pathological obsession uh, with destroying unions, the working class is still able to use collective action to help them get the goods. And so I think this stands as a great example of like a combination of strike action and and organized worker pressure on the state. Like how you can use those things in concert to to force, you know, the unwilling bourgeois government to be like, look, if you don't fix this, we're just not gonna pick up the trash. And <laughs> you see what happens after just a short period of time when the trash doesn't get picked up. So maybe it'd be a good idea to actually pay us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and segueing from a story related to COVID to another story related to COVID, uh, if, <laughs> yep. you, if you try to get vaccinated or pick up a prescription of one of the uh, nation's pharmacy monopolies lately, I'm guessing that you have seen a, a small number of techs, maybe a single pharmacist, uh, and that's about it, trying to handle mm-hmm. a line of people, a phone ringing off the hook, and possibly even an angry customer or two. Uh, if what I'm describing is something that you've experienced, it's because this problem isn't isolated to just a few locations. It's rampant. It's all over the country. And this is the fucking, these are the companies that Joe Biden has handed all of these re- these uh, responsibilities over to who are, you know, dropping the ball on this. Uh pretty much on purpose and i mean like all of these reasons together are are some of the reasons why a few weeks ago cvs workers in kansas city walked out to demand higher staffing levels i mean and it it was kind of funny when going over all of this the ap was basically shitting their pants that workers could act uh when put into horrible conditions saying quote it's unclear why workload concerns uh, that are common industry-wide led to a work stoppage in Kansas City. The pharmacists involved are not in, are not in a union and haven't spoken publicly. End quote. Oh, it's it's a it's unclear why when I heat up a pot of water, it starts boiling in one part of the pot and not the other. I I don't really under fucking stand it. <laughs> <laughs> this that that the, when you showed me that quote, I was just like, wow. There really are no standards for journalism in the United States. Like, I I could explain this to a toddler, and they would get it better than the person who wrote this article, which, of course, perhaps is the point. But, yeah. like, yeah, I mean, the whole idea. Conditions are terrible in the whole industry. Why are they protesting here? Like, I'm just like, say that a couple more times <laughs> to yourself and decide whether that makes sense. Well, like, and like, on. look at the pattern of union organizing in the country. Like, you have one city in one industry that erupts, and then a national organizing campaign is usually not far behind. So for them to also just, there, there's a certain myopic uh, view here that they want to impose, which is that, like, this is just happening in Kansas City, and as far as anyone is concerned, it's just gonna happen in Kansas City, which <laughs> right. is not true. <laughs> yeah, it's, and what just to, to prove it's not true i mean following those that cvs walkout walgreens workers this past monday through wednesday held walkouts for the exact same reason you know it's a little unclear how many people participated in these walkouts because 
honestly, the coverage on this is just a bunch of papers being like, oh, this is happening. This is uh, not really anyone talking to the workers so much. But it is clear that this has resonated with many pharmacy workers as there are even more walkouts planned October 30th through November 1st. I mean, this is one of those industries where it's like industry-wide bargaining or maybe even just straight-up nationalization is so obvious because if you walked into a CVS, a Rite Aid, or a Walgreens, and there was no logo of the store anywhere in your view, and I asked you which one you were in, you would not be able to tell. It's like the institutional version of there being like four indistinguishable shampoos on the on the shelf, except it's the building that you go to. It's I'll, I'll just call CVS Rite Aid because I'm more used to going to Rite Aid, and it makes right. no difference. Right. Well, and and it and it, it's the thing. It's like that's also the reason why this is all happening. It's like, it Mm -hmm. is the monopolization of pharmacy work that has created the conditions that are so bad now for pharmacy workers. That process of monopolization is what has has really proletarianized Mm -hmm. pharmacy work in this country because previously, you know, pharmacy work was considered more of a, you'd have your little pharmacist shop. It was more of a petty bourgeois sort of setup where you have these independent pharmacies, these little shops, and they're they're run by, you know, maybe one pharmacist who has the degree, which is very difficult to get. Like that's, you have to study for a while to become a pharmacist. Uh, and now, you know, you just have CVS and Walgreens absorbing the whole industry and trying to de-skill it as much as possible so that they can pay workers less. And that just, A, destroys the working conditions for these workers, but also... These are workers that are making sure that people are getting the medicine they need. Mm -hmm. If you make their conditions horrible, the likelihood of mistakes and problems is only going to go up, which only hurts customers, only hurts patients. This hurts everyone. Well, yeah. And I mean, like the number of, of, you know, miswriting scripts has gone up in the past, uh, you know, bit of time. And I mean, to speak to the training that's required also, I mean, pharmacists actually, while on, I mean, and I have a quote here that I'll get to in a moment, while on their 12-hour shifts actually can't leave because they're required to supervise the techs at all times because of the safety issues. And so this means that pharmacists basically can't use the bathroom or have to shut down the pharmacy when they do. I mean, I'm I guess it's it's let's let me get to the quote here. We, there's an anonymous pharmacist from a Walgreens, and they're anonymous because uh, they rightfully are afraid of retaliation. And I'll also point out some of that in a minute. But they said, "quote There have been days where I worked alone or with one technician when there are over 300 prescriptions to fill. That is not humanly possible along with your day to day tasks. As a pharmacist, this is verification." patient calls, vaccines, transfers, calling doctors, doing medical management, end quote. All of those things are require are being required to do by either a single pharmacist or a pharmacist in one tech. And the story mm-hmm. that I have from my personal experience is I was in getting my COVID vaccine and there was one tech there. And I said, wow, uh, this is re- I, I'm some angry person came in, was complaining. And I once they called me down just to touch, I was like, yeah, they're really short staffing these people. There was the walkout at CVS. And then uh, the person that I went up to talk to said that they were the only one scheduled and that the second tech there was just another worker that was kind enough to actually stick around to make sure that they didn't fall behind. There was also someone who left the waiting room because they couldn't wait for their vaccine. 
Mm-hmm. Like, that's the kind of pressure that they're under. Yeah, it's, and like, you know, so many workers do such important jobs, but like, these are not uh, like-to-have products, like Dan was saying. Like, these are COVID vaccines that could save your life. These are regular medications that people need, like SSRIs and ADHD and antipsychotics and all manner of other things where a gap in your medication could be very dangerous, depending on what your personal situations are. Yeah, and, and like, I mean, like, so, like, I live in Rhode Island, which is actually where CVS is headquartered. There's a CVS every fucking block here. And yet, every single one I have ever been into, every one, the people in the pharmacy were just completely slammed and overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a properly staffed CVS pharmacy ever. Yeah. I'm lucky enough that I can go to the pharmacy during extremely off hours because I get out of work so fucking early. And even if you show up to a pharmacy at like 11.30 a.m., it's packed. It's mm-hmm. fucking packed because a bunch of people have the same idea you do because the situations during peak hours is so bad that peak hours are just all the time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it's constantly stated through these media pieces that there simply aren't enough people to work these positions, which could be true in a certain sense. But it's also important to point out that in a 2022 report by pharmacy workforce by the Pharmacy Workforce Center, that over 75% of technicians said their satisfaction on their job was poor. Like, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> uh, they're, I'm surprised they're... it's only 75%. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the other ones probably just declined to answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or worried that the anonymous survey is not actually anonymous. Rightfully yeah. so. Well, and I mean, like, there are also, in rare occasions, still community pharmacies. I mean, the pharmacy that I originally had when I moved back to uh, Michigan, like, ha- it was pretty well staffed. It was also a small family pharmacy. But then right. uh, they went out of business and transferred everyone to Walgreens. <sighs> Yep. So clearly this industry uh, leads people quickly to burnout and Mm -hmm. uh, pharmacists are, as I said, constantly having to work 12 hour days, also leading them to burnout. Yeah. And it's like the parallels between the situation faced by these pharmacy workers and that faced by the nurses at the Rutgers hospital are there because this is a systemic problem this is the what this is the inevitable result of applying the capitalist profit system to healthcare. this is the only result that can possibly happen there because when you make the incentive is profit not care then everything has to be aligned in that direction which leads inevitably to monopoly which leads inevitably to de-skilling which leads inevitably to cutting wages and more and more automation that's why you see more we want you to use ai therapy we want you to only use telehealth with somebody that you talk to for three seconds and has never read your chart and doesn't know you and doesn't and never actually has a conversation with you but also telehealth doesn't count for call-ins at work right yeah no and it's and it's it, and it's the same thing with nursing. It's again, it's like when you when you apply a system that says you need more profit next year, and then you need more profit next year, and then you need more profit next year. You can't you can't run a healthcare system that way. It simply does not work. But Dan, if the problem is endemic and systemic to the entire monopolized industry, then why do the labor actions happen in particular places? <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh. <laughs> AP got us. Uh, how well, could how could on a series of quantitative changes 
turn into a qualitative change? Where has this ever happened? <laughs> well, I mean, and to be fair, I mean, these workouts, these walkouts do seem a little disorganized, but hopefully what this does is lead workers to, you know, unionization. And there has been a little bit of that. There was recently reported uh, Walgreens on Clark Ave and Broadway in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, that filed for an independent union called Pharmacy Workers United. They don't have Sick. much of an online process or an online presence or anything like that. Uh, but I also, while looking up this filing, found that the company had brought in Littler Mendelssohn to bust the union. Ooh. Yeah. So... Uh, while there are, I mean, there are also like some unionized pharmacists in SEIU, most likely in hospitals. Uh, but the only retail pharmacists that I could find that are currently unionized are at our CVS workers in Chicago, who are part of Teamsters Local 727. Uh, so I guess if you're looking for a union that does have a little bit of history with pharmacists, it's Teamsters and SEIU. Uh, and also, if you're in the Cleveland area, stop by and support the workers. They're likely facing a really awful union-busting campaign and getting very little support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, I mean, obviously we support the unionization of these workers, but ultimately, like, we need to nationalize this entire industry and unionize the workers. Both. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, moving from one heavily monopolized industry to another, um, let's talk about entertainment a little bit. So we have an update on the SAG-AFTRA situation. And while we've been celebrating the amazing wins by the WGA in their new contract, uh, which the membership ratified by 99% this week, which is truly incredible. Unfortunately, things have not moved in the same direction for the 170,000 actors who are still on strike. We had been hopeful that the defeat of the AMPTP by the WGA signaled an admission by the bosses that they could not overcome the power of the workers and would soon reach a similar deal with the actors. But unfortunately, on Wednesday, October 11th, we learned that this was not the case. So on social media, we heard from SAG-AFTRA when they announced that the bosses had walked away from the negotiating table entirely quote it is with profound disappointment that we report the industry ceos have walked away from the bargaining table after refusing to counter our latest offer we have negotiated with them in good faith despite the fact that last week they presented an offer that was shockingly worth less than what they proposed before the strike began these companies refuse to protect performers from being replaced by ai they refuse to increase your wages to keep up with inflation and they refuse to share a tiny portion of the immense revenue your work generates for them. We have made big, meaningful counters on our end, including completely transforming our revenue share proposal, which would cost the companies less than 57 cents per subscriber each year. Uh, Columbia Record Club prices. Uh, <laughs> they have rejected our proposals and refused to counter. Instead, they use bully tactics. Just tonight, they intentionally misrepresented to the press the cost of the above proposal, overstating it by 60%. They have done the same with AI, claiming to protect performer consent, but continuing to demand quote-unquote consent on the first day of employment for use of a performer's digital replica for an entire cinematic universe or any franchise project. The companies are using the same failed strategy they tried to inflict on the WGA, putting out misleading information in an attempt to fool our members into abandoning our solidarity and putting pressure on our negotiators. But just like the writers, our members are smarter than that and will not be fooled. We stand united and ready to negotiate today, tomorrow, and every day. End quote. 
I mean, I I will say, I mean, I th- a great statement, and I'm glad that the the SAG is not you know just caving to AMPTP's bullshit. I will say, I was a little surprised by this development from the studios. Like, I I certainly thought, like I think a lot of folks in labor did that that the defeat of the AMPTP by the WGA in their strike was basically an acknowledgement from the studios that, that they could not win, <laughs> that clearly uh, the the forces were aligned better on the workers' side, which makes sense. There's 200,000 of them <laughs> compared to the AMPTP, which is what, like 30 people? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, uh, so yeah, I certainly expected them to come to the table with SAG and negotiate a similar deal to, like, what the WGA just got. But apparently they seem to have decided that, like, well, now that we've got the writers back and we can do talk shows that we're ready for the long haul and we can crush the actors, which doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know. I mean, it does seem to me a little bit like their thinking might be that since there are so many more SAG members than the other two unions that like, okay, the directors, they were easy. They just roll over whatever. They're better paid in the first place. They run the projects. They're basically bosses. The writers, they were like, we can fight both fronts. And then after a little while, they were like, well, We can't fight both fronts. So let's take the resources from fighting the much smaller union and put and see if that little, you know, 5% increase in our union busting effectiveness makes us able to tackle the SAG membership, which I mean, I can see it making sense in a bourgeois kind of logic kind of way, but in a material sense, it's absolute fucking nonsense. It makes zero sense at all. Yeah, like it it just it just goes back to me to that same hubris of, of the statement that was leaked in, in mm-hmm. intentionally at the beginning of the strike to try and demoralize workers where they're like, we're just going to wait them out until people start losing their homes, which of course was an idiotic thing to do because all that did was galvanize the workers and galvanize everyone against them. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. And help played a role in, you know, uh, making it so that the WGA could beat them. But I, I can only look to that to, as an indication of just, you know, how out of touch these billionaires are with reality. <laughs> yeah, it's a banana, Michael. How much could it cost? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so the AMPTP attempted its own PR offensive of lies in advance of their decision to walk away from the table, of course. Uh, they issued a statement attacking the workers, erroneously claiming that the workers had rejected the same terms that the WGA accepted. Uh, they also claimed that the workers' demands on revenue sharing and AI protections, quote, would create an untenable economic burden, unquote, <laughs> which that is so deranged because it's like you already make film and television without AI. (laughs) What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. How could we possibly make television programs without AI actors? Like you just did it for a hundred years. How could we do it? It's impossible. It's literally not feasible. Um, So it it also now appears that the AMPTP believes that it can use the fact that the WGA and DGA have signed contracts, as we said, to pressure SAG, by far the largest of the three unions, into caving. But as mentioned before, this really doesn't make a lick of fucking sense. The WGA stole has stood in total solidarity with the actors and continues to do so. I mean, when they announced that their strike was over, they were like, go to the SAG picket lines. Right. That's our recommendation. Exactly. And so, they continue to do that. They're like, they continue to be like, look, the studios are being assholes. We got to stick with the, the, the actors just like the actors stuck with us, which is mm-hmm. exactly right. 
Yeah, and the 170,000 members of SAG-AFTRA continue to flood picket lines across the country with overwhelming public support. Ultimately, this looks like yet another gambit based on hubris and the idea that the studios control Hollywood and that nobody else has a say. But just like when they cut all the shade trees near picket lines during the summer, which was, again, such an iconic, just evil, (laughs) evil Mm -hmm. move. Um, Mm -hmm. Just like when they threatened to wait out the writers until they lost their homes, this attack will also almost certainly backfire and galvanize the workers to continue their struggle. Because, yeah, I mean, imagine you're the worker in this situation. Do you start to get scared and go, oh, no, maybe we should give the AMPTP everything they want? Or do you just respond with a resounding, fuck you, that's ridiculous, you can't do this to us? Mm Mm-hmm. And so we also want to highlight why it's so important for the public to continue showing their support so that the actors know that they aren't alone. The more support we provide to workers on strike, the more leverage that they have and the better gains that they can win. So if you're in L.A., New York or any of the other major cities with SAG after picket lines, take some time and talk with the workers. Let them know that you stand with them and find out if there are strike funds or mutual aid drives that you can help to provide material support to them as well. Yeah, I mean... 100%. And before we get to what we've been covering at the end of the episode, every, you know, episode since the, the UAW stand-up strike, we actually the want... Last month. Right, right. Well, we also want to talk about the uh, UAW. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're still on this. So, uh, <laughs> with the lots of UAW news, this week we actually get to talk about something other than just the big three, because workers at Mack Truck have been bargaining with the company for over three months, pushing for better wages, COLA, pension increases, and healthcare coverage. The UAW negotiation team at MAC has put together a tentative agreement they felt meets those needs. But there was clearly a disconnect with the membership because when the TA was presented, the workers voted de- voted it down 73%. Uh, <laughs> This proposed five-year tentative agreement would have included 19% raises and a a $3,500 signing bonus. This represents an average raise of 3.5% per year, enough to stave off normal inflation but not to catch up with the cost-of-living crisis that workers are currently going through. Mack Trucks is currently owned by the same parent firm, Volvo Trucks, which workers struck after rejecting three TAs back in 2021. Mack sells about 30,000 trucks per year. In a major change from prior UAW administrations, rather than argue with the membership or make tiny tweaks to the same offer and present it for a second vote, the UAW leadership recognized the dissatisfaction of the membership and announced on Monday, October 9th, that all 4,000 workers at Mack Truck Assembly across three states would walk out on strike. In Florida, Pennsylvania, uh, and Maryland, Mack Truck workers joined their brothers and sisters and siblings in the Big Three in standing up for a fair contract. In their statement announcing the strike, UAW President Sean Fain said, quote, The members have spoken, and as the highest authority in our union, they have the final word. Hell yeah. I'm inspired to see UAW members at Mack Truck holding out for a better deal and ready to stand up and walk off the job to win it. End quote. I mean, this This is is a huge shift. This is so fucking important, too. It's Mm -hmm. like when you when you think about that previous history of taking offers that the membership votes down, tweaking them slightly and then presenting them for a second vote. And then you think about what tweaking a five year contract offer with with bear with uh 
terms that barely keep up with the cost of living. Uh, when, when you factor that into the equation, it's like it's got to feel like you're just slamming your head against the wall to vote for that same contract and vote it down however many times in a row. But when you have leadership that's like, oh, you don't like the contract? All right, I guess we're striking. Let's do it, everybody. <laughs> like, that makes an enormous fucking difference in morale, ability to organize, and the efficacy of your labor organizing at all. Yeah, and it's funny because I saw some places, uh, payday report, try and make this out to be a, a huge rebuke of Sean Fain by the the UAW membership. And I'm like, did you pay attention to the Volvo strike two years ago? They could not be more different. Like, mm-hmm. the admin caucus did everything they could in 2021 to try and force that shitty deal on the Volvo truck workers. This time... The negotiating team, which I imagine Sean Fain was probably not personally involved with because he's kind of busy at the moment with, you know, the tens of thousands of people already on strike at the big three. But, like, they put together an offer that they thought was good, and then the workers were like, no, it should be better. And instead of, again, in just two years ago, the previous administration would have been like, well, we put together a good contract. I can't believe the workers rejected it. You have the complete opposite reaction mm-hmm. this time, where the administration is like, "Oh, all right, I guess this wasn't good enough. Fuck Mac. We'll go out and strike." Well, Hell, and it's it's yeah. so it's it's ludicrous to characterize it as like a rebuke of Fane, because I think if you went to Fane and you were like, "Look, these Mac truck workers rebuked you," he would be like, "How can they rebuke me? They're in charge." Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, but. Speaking to that point, speaking of the members of the UAW finally being in the driver's seat of their union, we've, of course, got our big update for the UAW, their their big stand-up strike at the big three automakers to wrap up our news for the week. So building on his deployment of the new UAW Eat the Rich shirt from last week, which I saw, uh, I think I saw like one local uh, like was able to sell you know copies of that and get like $12,000 for the strike fund, which is Hell incredibly yeah. cool. I mean, it's a badass looking fucking piece of apparel. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, it rocks. And so, and and so, and in addition to that, you know, he's not just wearing the shirt. You know, Sean Fain didn't mince words when he was interviewed this week by Status Quo News, asking specifically about the messaging on the shirt. And he said, "Quote: It's time to turn this country around. Billionaires have no reason to exist in in society. Period. No one needs that kind of money. And especially when someone's that wealthy, somebody else is being exploited for it." billions of people are being exploited for it and that's what's wrong in this country that's just about the most correct thing i've ever heard an american say (laughs) pretty close yeah especially especially one with any sort of power Mm -hmm. and so you know while the uaw's crystal clear understanding of the class forces at play here informs the strike strategy which is so terrified and incensed the bosses at the big three which they keep complaining about in the press Uh, The companies are continuing, unfortunately, to try and respond to the strike by using scabs. And as reported this week by The Intercept, one of the main sources that Stellantis has turned to for scabs from its white-collar non-union employees is from these labor management groups that it's set up ostensibly in the name of diversity and inclusion. Uh, this is a very sinister move by the companies, but unfortunately has a long sort of history. These, these what they are referred to by Salinas as business resource groups, which uh, I love a name that says so much about 
anything. <laughs> like uh, they're internal groupings within the co- company that they mirror what we would think of as affinity groups in in broader society. So you know, like groups of say like uh, Latin American workers, groups of 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 Spanish speaking workers, groups of of workers who are you know newcomers to the United States, all sorts of different things. Like all sorts of these different groupings of folks, workers within the the company. The key difference being is that these groups at Stellantis are controlled by the company, unlike, you know, affinity groups on the outside, which are controlled democratically. And therefore, ultimately, these groups within Stellantis function primarily in the same manner as NGOs and HR departments. They simultaneously serve as a means of surveillance by the bosses to know what workers are talking about and as ways to prevent independent organization by workers by creating the illusion that there's a pathway for their grievances to upper management. And now that the strike is on, Stellantis is weaponizing these groups against union workers by using them as one of the primary means for organizing non-union like office workers to volunteer as scabs at parts distribution centers. And I say this every single time, you know, all of all of the particulars of this aside, uh, the quality of of the parts distribution is just going to go down. You're going to be getting the wrong mm-hmm. parts. You're going to be getting not mm-hmm. enough of the parts. You're going to be getting the parts damaged. Everything's going to be fucked up. Like this whole thing, it, it doesn't even really make sense in a profit motive kind of thinking. This is just straight up labor discipline. And yeah. I mean, are these people in management necessarily or is this kind of like a company union? It is kind of like a company <laughs> union. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is actually the parallel that I would make this. That's uh like especially during like the 80s and 90s, the big onslaught of 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 anti-union attacks uh during, you know, the the rise of neoliberalism and the late Carter and then very much in the Reagan era, there was this creation of these labor management partnership teams. Uh, again, it, as it's, it's like, okay, we can't make a company union because that's illegal. But what if we don't call it a company union? What if we call it something else? They, they changed the, the name of the thing as an attempt <laughs> to change the and, and say that it, they have changed the thing itself, I believe, is the quote. Well, and also just like partnership is such a fucking like such an advertising brain ass mm-hmm. word. Anytime you see a quote unquote partnership, you need to make absolutely sure it's between two proletarian groups or right. it's not worth a damn thing. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, as shitty as this is, obviously Stellantis has nowhere near enough white collar workers to replace the thousands of workers currently on strike, especially while the community continues to support those workers. And, and you know, obviously one of the main hopes of any employer during any strike is to be able to outlast the workers. But there was a really good article this week in The Takeout where uh, – Reporter uh, Micheline Maynard spoke with some of the workers who are helping keep the strikers on the line one day longer than the bosses. So speaking with UAW members, retirees, and and just broader community members who weren't even auto workers in Wayne, Michigan, uh, Maynard discussed the flood of donations that the union has received since the strike began. Uh, feeding nearly 5,000 workers from nearby uh, Michigan assembly facility uh, that Ford has in Wayne is a big challenge, even with the union's increased strike pay this year. 
So the workers have set up a round-the-clock operation at the local 900 Union Hall to make sure no one goes hungry. Every day, current workers and retirees prepare fresh hot meals for strikers and their families. Donations of bread, meat, fruit and vegetables have come from many local businesses and even, surprisingly, some chains like Quiznos and Jimmy John's have provided free food to the striking workers. And... Of course, even without making a formal ask, other unions in the area have flooded in to drop off food as well to show their solidarity. And, I mean, I'm surprised that these businesses that are not pro-union are doing this, but maybe it's just a publicity play? I mean, we accept free donations, but, you know, still... I mean, it's well, I also like is... the, supporting these workers is just it's just such a part of the community in a place like Wayne, mm-hmm. Michigan. Like it's such an uh, an integrated part of the economic landscape for so long that the workers at these plants are your community that it's like if if you don't kind of just show them boilerplate goodwill, you become an enemy of the community pretty fucking fast. And that's the death of a Quiznos, which already, I don't know why you would ever go to a Quiznos. Jimmy yeah, John's is I, bad enough. <laughs> I will say I, I am always surprised when I'm reminded that Quiznos still exists. Uh, <laughs> but I, I actually think the big thing that, that here is that this is one of the, the few places where the franchise model can actually sort of backfire a little mm-hmm. bit against monopoly companies because, you know, while that does give them ways to shield themselves from labor law, it also does make the franchises a little teeny bit, slightly, not really in the ways that really matter. But in some sideways, they are a little bit independent. And this is a case here where, again, like the, the workers at the Jimmy John's especially, the workers, not the ownership, but and even the ownership of these places, they're from the area. And so they're like, when you have the biggest employer in the area and all those workers go out on strike... Probably just like, well, I know that Quiznos probably isn't in favor of this, but like this is our whole customer base. We mm-hmm. need to support them. Everybody who buys a sub has a family member who's been fucked over by the big right. three, right? So Yeah, exactly. And so one other thing that's been really cool to watch recently is that the UAW's new militancy has also encouraged many other workers to affiliate with them, even outside auto work. Like this week, a second Alamo Draft House location in New York City, this one in lower Manhattan, voted to join the UAW. The 100 workers at Manhattan at the Manhattan Theater voted by 65% in favor of joining UAW Local 2179, two weeks after the Brooklyn Alamo location won the first recognized union election went at the chain, which rules. And again, this is another thing where I think people who don't follow this would look at this and be like, why are movie theater workers unionizing with the auto workers? That doesn't make sense. And I'm like, well, look at what their union is doing. You don't want to work with that union? I sure would. <laughs> I mean, this is the same thing when we saw the UPS contract where we saw right. people be like, I want to join the Teamsters. Right. People are like, I'm looking at the UAW strike and I want to join the UAW. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And which, which rules. And so... Uh, one of the things that was really interesting, though, this week is we got a big shakeup in uh, the basically what has kind of fallen into a schedule of like how the strike progresses week to week. You know, the big news over the last few weeks has been come from the eagerly awaited Friday morning press conferences from UAW President Sean Fain. And this strategy, you know, in the stand up strike has had the, the, the big three, the different companies, scrambling each week to provide a better offer to the union before Friday and avoid additional plants going out on strike. But this week, the UAW shook things up a bit, once again showing their ability to keep companies off balance. 
On Wednesday, October 11th, the UAW stunned the companies by announcing that they would shut down Ford's most profitable plant, which is perhaps actually the single most profitable auto factory in the world, the company's Kentucky truck plant. The plant produces extremely profitable super-duty line of trucks and many of Ford's most lucrative large SUVs. And so, announcing the expansion of the strike, the UAW explained that they arrived at the bargaining table with Ford after giving the company two weeks to improve the economic portion of their counteroffer, which they'd previously left at a 23% raise. When the union bargaining team arrived at the table on Wednesday, the company just handed back the exact same offer with no improvements. And so in response, President Fain was quite direct, saying, quote, If this is all you have for us, our members' lives and my handshake are worth more than this. This just cost you Kentucky truck plan. <laughs> Slam. <laughs> Fucking I love em. the phrase, this just cost you Kentucky truck plan. It really sounds like it's about to be followed with, you want to go for two? no i know exactly like i know you posted about this where it's it's the same energy of i will turn this fucking car around (laughs) but it's so great to see it deployed against the companies because they're the ones that are always you know trying to 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 patronize the workers and do all this bullshit and so i really just appreciate you know the workers making it clear who's in the driver's seat for once uh and so that evening The 8,700 UAW workers at Kentucky Truck walked out, joining the 25,000 already standing up on the picket lines, bringing us to about 33,000, 34,000 UAW workers currently on strike at the Big Three. And workers at the plant who spoke with Labor Notes discussed the awful conditions workers face there. James White, who has worked at Kentucky Truck for 10 years, spoke of the heat workers suffer in. Quote, people are dropping here because it's so hot. Management's answer was, we'll give you two Gatorades. I've seen a woman pass out, and then the supervisor literally stepped over her to restart the line, end quote. What That's a crime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is another one. Of the, it's, it's so funny, like, too, uh, you know, watching this, especially when you watch, like, the live stream and stuff, you see all these comments from, like, mem- like union members, and also you see these on 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 social media. And when this strike was announced, you saw so many workers were just like, finally. Yeah. <laughs> just like, we've been wanting to strike these motherfuckers for years. Yeah. And, and, and it's really great. It, that's one of the things I think that's also been so inspiring about this strike is like seeing, you know, folks who have wanted to stand up for this stuff, but the, you know, class collaborationist admin caucus, people were like, no, we have to work with the companies. Rising tide lifts all boats. And all this other stuff. Fucking bullshit. And now, you know, you have the members in charge and there's like, we're not waiting around anymore. Yeah. Well, we it's like this. It, it finally released the energy of, of the Tim Robinson in all of us where all the auto workers yeah. were like, what did they do to us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And so, you know, and the funny thing too was Ford was also clearly shocked by this move uh, in their anger at losing their most profitable plant. Ford actually inadvertently admitted the workers had a point. In a statement issued in response to the strike, Ford said, quote, The vehicles produced at the Louisville-based factory generate $25 billion a year in revenue. This decision by the UAW is all the more wrongheaded, given that Ford is the only automaker to add UAW jobs since the Great Recession and assemble all its, its full-size trucks in America, end quote. <laughs> wow, what a great target for a strike. Yeah. But, yeah, and I'm like, okay, 
all right, so you, you generate 25 billion a year in revenue. That is a lot. And there are 9,000 people. That is a lot of jobs. So let me, let me, let me do a little back of the napkin math. Uh, to go with your statement here, Ford. There are 8,700 uh, UAW auto workers at the plant. With 25 billion, with a B, in revenue, that means that UAW workers are producing nearly $3 million in revenue per person. And yet the company says a 40% raise would bankrupt them. Mm-hmm. These are workers who are producing $3 million in revenue with salaries of, if they're lucky, fifty to 60000 not million. Well, wait, thousand. If a forty percent raise was going to bankrupt the company, these workers must already be each clearing a million a year, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And yet the company calls the workers greedy. And Sean Fain pointed out that the workers at Kentucky Truck produce more money in a minute, forty-eight thousand dollars than thousands of Ford workers make in a year. So thank you, Ford, for proving the workers' point in your idiotic statement. <laughs> Like, it's, it's ridiculous. And so, on this week's Friday live stream, President Fain celebrated uh, not just, you know, the, the big three workers on strike, but the backbone of the workers at Mack Truck, who, to look at the tentative agreement and say that they needed more. He also hailed the workers at Blue Cross Blue Shield, who have been on strike for weeks, and the UAW workers at Detroit Casinos and at General Dynamics, who have recently authorized potential strikes of their own. Fain explained that part of the decision to strike at Kentucky Truck immediately was intentional in order to keep the companies from getting complacent and being able to just wait until Friday every week to make any movement in negotiations. The move to strike on Wednesday shows the companies that they can't just drag things out. Uh, Fain said, quote, We're not waiting until Fridays anymore. They know what needs to happen, and they know how to get it done. Don't you dare slow walk us or lowball us. We will take out whatever plants that they force us to. Ah, that's so cool. You have five <laughs> minutes to bring us a contract offer. And if it's not here in four minutes, I swear to God, we will walk out of this plant three minutes from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And that's because that's the thing. So many times, even when unions in this country take a militant action, it's then followed up with a hedge. It's like, but if they're willing to work with us, you know, we can do this. No, unabashedly, like, look, we have demands and these are demands that we need. And we told you what they were weeks ago. And you guys just keep dicking around. We're not going to let you do that. Mm -hmm. It's like you don't control these negotiations. The 150,000 UAW auto workers do. So if you guys keep dicking around, then there's going to be consequences. Yeah, the, the, the hedging right. thing is exactly what you say, because like every time they turn the pressure up, they get scared and they're like, oh, we got to take <laughs> our hand off the dial here. And Fane is doing the opposite. He's just like, oh, turn the pressure down, turn the pressure up. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which is so good. And, and you know, and Fane lashed out at, appropriately at Ford executives who claim that they've hit their limit on economic proposals. Again, pointing out that workers sometimes take 16 years to hit top pay rate at their at these companies while the companies continue to rake in billions in profit. Payne said, quote, how much further do they want America's auto workers to stretch? We aren't going to keep begging for scraps. Go get the big checkbook, the one Ford uses to pay checks to executives and Wall Street shareholders. And <laughs> hell yeah. And especially because like when they say shit like we've hit our limit on economic proposals, how many last best and final offers have we talked about on this fucking show? Mm-hmm. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. 
And Fain continued saying, quote, we strike for four weeks and everyone loses their minds. Where was the concern when they closed 65 plants? Where was the concern when they cut millions of jobs? Somebody has to stand up and say enough is enough. The longer our strike goes on, the more the public stands with us. What we win is up to us. That quote. is so right. I mean, like, it's just, uh, I mean, not to just, you know, as you said before, pointing out hypocrisy is not necessarily effective, but, I mean, it, it is true that they don't give a damn about the workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I... <laughs> Look, I know, you know, the thing we're supposed to learn following the labor movement is you don't never want to overly lionize an individual labor leader or put them on a pedestal. But I this it's it I guess I gotta say it is so cathartic to finally see somebody up there just saying the stuff that is obvious to all American workers and refusing to to take that and hedge it or put it into company-friendly cooperation language and to just say, no, these motherfuckers have been exploiting us for decades. They are stealing the lives of these workers and it's got to fucking stop. Well, yeah, and it's not like we we are celebrating Fane for doing any like great man of history shit. He's literally just doing his fucking job properly, which is something that has been missing at the top of this union for so fucking long that when someone actually comes in and is like, "Oh, the membership wants this," well, that becomes our priority. Then we all have to like get out the party hats and streamers and shit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we push this rank and file unionism mm-hmm. line so much because. Of of how inspiring it is to the people that builds up a base that will actually fight back alongside, you know, the administration in this case, who is, you know, standing with the workers, who is clearly mm-hmm. speaking with the voice of the workers, which is what we want. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I want a future for the labor movement where this level of, of strategy and this level of members' involvement is the baseline. Like... And that is the direction that we can move in with the Democratic rank and file strategy. And so it's so important, you know, that we continue to support the UAW auto workers and make this a successful strike. And and Fain was was very was very clear as he closed, you know, the the weekly press conference that the the workers are entering a new phase in the strike, explicitly stating that the union is not going to wait anymore until Friday to strike plants on a specific schedule and that they will strike plants at a moment's notice based on bargaining progress. And basically, this is just saying like, look, we're not letting you guys off the hook. You've had months and, and months and months to figure this shit out. Don't fuck around yeah don't get comfy you can't just sit mm-hmm. there and, and be like oh well you know i can give you a bad proposal on wednesday because then i'll give you a, a good proposal on friday no fuck right you. give us a good proposal now <laughs> yeah exactly so you know love to see it this is just showing the creativity and the power that workers can have when they're actually empowered in their their union because that's the thing it's like all the different actions that we're seeing like Fain, i think is doing a great job as the president of the union but he's not individually directing those it's the workers doing mm-hmm. that it's the workers who put together this incredible list of demands it is the workers themselves who are as as Fain has been saying every time he gets interviewed they are the ones in charge they are the ones running this strike and they're doing a hell of a job <laughs> as the highest authority in the union the workers are doing a hell of a job mm-hmm. that's right all right. Well, we have made it to the meme review, and uh, I've got a, a really cute.
cute one at the beginning this time, but uh, I I just thought it was really funny because anyone who has uh, you know had good coworkers in in the past who have seen how much management can fuck things up uh, can really relate to this one. And uh, it says that look that you and your coworker give each other when management really steps in it, and it's this turtle giving this like side eye, and this horse giving a side eye back, and it really just feels like that silent like. Oh God! They keep fucking doing this. <laughs> what? The, this meme just made me think of that thing that the uh, Laxman, who's I don't know his last yeah, yeah, name, yeah, yeah. The, Starbucks. The C, yeah, the new CEO of Starbucks, where he did that thing. Where he's like, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna be go. I'm gonna go down to the countryside. I'm gonna go work a shift, which is not a shift. It's like an hour, uh, like at a store every month or whatever. And this is just what I imagine every single one of those stores. All the workers like looking at this guy, like this motherfucker doesn't know how to make any of these drinks. He's just fucking everything up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just love this one. I also, there's uh, this one. I guess is SEIU nine twenty five that put this out. There's a tiny little stamp on the turtle's head there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, our next meme is, is is topical to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show with the uh, conflict happening in occupied Palestine right now. And in this meme, we just see the, the 3D animated boxer guy peering in from the side of the page and he says, okay, I'm a fight, neo-colonial imperialist propaganda. And then he's sitting down on the stool drinking water and it says, damn, people are super indoctrinated by this shit. <laughs> yeah, it's wild, but... I, I will say, I don't want to just turn stuff into despair about this idea. Like this, this week, especially as we've approached this weekend, there have been tens of thousands of people in the streets in, in New York, in London, in Paris, defying bans on protests. And so while there are a lot of people super indoctrinated to this shit, there's also a lot of people who are on the right side and there's people who can be turned to this. So so keep up the fight. Hell <laughs> I know yeah. that's a very serious thing to say during the meme review. I mean, <laughs> it is also important to note that a huge percentage of the American populace doesn't know a single fucking thing about Mm -hmm. palestine and israel and they are probably too scared to admit it so you you have to be like nice about having these conversations which is makes you feel absolutely mental because you don't want to be nice about atrocities but like you know i don't know read i i don't know what my advice is here it's hard (laughs) yeah Yeah. And, and and so our next one is really just a headline from the onion who have continued They've been the go-to satirists in this country for decades for a reason, uh, continuing their biting and accurate commentary with a headline that just reads, New York Times issues apology for reporting Palestinian deaths. Yeah. Which is, like, again, basically how everything has reacted this week. I mean, fucking AOC came out and, like, condemned the rally in solidarity with Palestine that, that happened in New York City last weekend. Like, this is, and it's everybody, the only people I've seen not be complete horseshit on this is, like, Rashida Tlaib and I think Cory Bush. Yeah. And that's uh, it. Ilan Omar kind of, like, waffled a little bit and then came around to making a slightly more principled stance. But even for that kind of, like, mild commitment to, to human rights, uh, she and Tlaib are facing censure in Congress mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Meanwhile, you have other representatives showing up to press conferences in IDF uniforms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Justin Trudeau which, energy. That, that was wild where I'm just like, hey, you know, everybody looks at me all weird when I say that Israel is just an extension of the U.S. empire. I'm like, this they're telling you mm-hmm. to your face that that is true. But anyways, yeah. back, back, back to the happier memes. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, the next meme is just uh, a 3D model of Shrek running extremely fast, <laughs> and you can tell because it's it's blurred around. And this is from because they're speed lines. That's how you know. Yeah, the, yeah, speed blur. <laughs> and this is from at official work memes, and it just says, "Anyone else leave work like they're late for their house?" <laughs> yes, me every day. <laughs> I mean, that's the funny. I I've told my boss I have to leave. Uh, I have to leave really soon. As soon as I get back to the office so many times. And when they ask me, like, why, I always just say, it's important. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's important I not be here. (laughs) Because I don't want to be. (laughs) Oh, God, that's funny. And then this last one is an actual cute one, which says, uh, basically a Renaissance painting. And it's a black cat laying on a blanket with its eye longingly peering at half at a half-eaten cheeseburger on the table and (laughs) i i mean like we post the meme review in a couple different places so you're definitely going to want to see this because it really does radiate that renaissance painting vibe and if you have a cat you've also seen this a billion times (laughs) that's right (laughs) yeah no this is a good one there are so many of those paintings that have just like 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 women like lounging around and like looking at like fruit and stuff and <laughs> it looks exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've made it to the end folks. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash work stoppage. It's the only place that we get any funding for doing this, putting the work into the show. You also get access to all of our overtime content. There's a ton of episodes in there, including a wide backlog of, of content. So become a patron at patreon.com slash work stoppage. We really appreciate it. Jump in the Discord. Write us a review. Uh, all of the links are at workstoppagepod.com. We really appreciate all of the reviews and so follow us in all the places listen to beep beep let us listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever free palestine solidarity free palestine solidarity everybody death to colonialism this is for palestine of course the capital jerusalem unarmed people marching to the war when they're shooting them suppression is a question resistance is the answer long live palestine long live gaza palestine of course the capital jerusalem unarmed people marching to the war when they're shooting them suppression is a question resistance is the answer long live palestine long live gaza all you see is war every time you Turn your head at night Bloodshed on the floor Mother cries, who cries for her this time There's truth between these walls See the lies between the lines They hide where the bullets coming from From the tyrants dressed in our disguise I'm gonna ride until the end Even if I got a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we not gonna stop the Palestine is free Let me see a lighter, and we're not gonna stop the Palestine is free. Talk to not know, talk to be blind, talk to not care. Tell me what's real. Borderlines, military despair. How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear? And if you take away your home, where's the heart supposed to live? Talk to not know, talk to be blind, talk to not care. Tell me what's real. Borderlines, military despair. How to exist if there's no rights to be human in fear? And if you take away your home, where's the heart supposed to live?
Buthorea could resist without a wheelchair Ten year challenge, tell Reg if we are still here And tell that killer Netanyahu he should feel fear The old live through us and guarantee the children will care Criminal, not invincible and you know it Samadun, Samadun still sitting in their stoic May not feel us with you when you listen to our poems You inspire humanity, your resistance is heroic Regardless of talk, here's time we answer the call Through your strength of spirit you provide example for all How to live, how to love when attacked from the clouds above Loud and clear, the songs you sung can't be drowned by the sound of guns Or just watch your tragic time through a satellite dish The least that we can give you is an anthem like this They panic, try to analyse and sanitise this But we love you more than ever still, Palestine lives oppression of the Palestinians, encircling of the people of Gaza, the killing of civilians, the burning of homes, the daily oppression, the theft of land, the apartheid system in the West Bank where there are two road systems and I've been and I'm sure you have and you see the, the, the Israeli road, you see like a, a spanking new highway with just the settler cars going backwards and forwards, then you see the old Palestinian roads and it's clearly it's it's people living under two sets of laws, an apartheid system. So all this is being uncovered, and the boycotts and divestment and sanctions campaign, which I support and I'm sure many other people do, as a peaceful protest against the Israeli oppression. Support groups have got to keep proclaiming the rights of the Palestinians are the right to return, the right to um, the right to their homeland, really. And, um, and the theft of land is, Israel is breaking international law, it is breaking the Geneva Convention. 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 Convention.